So as you can imagine, after Absalom's attempted coup, David is more despondent than ever. He's aging and his health is beginning to fail. He's now lost both Amnon and Absalom. He's still in exile across the Jordan and his kingdom is more fractured than ever with everyone arguing over who should be king now. Is it safe for David to return to Jerusalem or not? Remember that the priests Zadok and Abiathar are still in Jerusalem. So David sends word and tells them to go to the elders of Judah, David's own tribe. That's where he can expect the strongest support, right? He sends an appeal. You are my own flesh and bone. Why should you be last to bring me back as king? And he sends a direct message to Amasa, his nephew, who had supported Absalom as his commander in chief. David says, you too are my own flesh and bone. I swear you will be the commander of my army instead of Joab. Whoa. Remember that Joab has been a problem for David from the get-go. Joab assassinated Abner because he was a threat to Joab's ambitions. And Joab was the one who pressed David to allow Absalom to come back to Jerusalem in the first place. Then Joab killed Absalom against David's express instructions. And frankly, David is done with Joab. All of Joab's subterfuge and manipulation has come to naught. Absalom didn't pick him as commander, and now David is rejecting him too. I have a feeling Joab is feeling pretty desperate right about now. The men of Judah respond to David's appeal for their support, and they go to Gilgal to meet David and bring him back across the Jordan River as king. As David and the people approach the Jordan, the folks who met him as he fled meet him again. Remember Shimei, who pelted David and the people with dirt and stones and yelled at them all along the way? He shows up and begs David for his life, and guess who shows up with him? Ziva, of all people, the servant who was supposed to take care of Mephibosheth but had betrayed him. Well, Abishai offers to kill Shimei on the spot, but David stops him, saying, No one will be put to death in Israel this day, for this day I have been made king over all of Israel. And David swears to Shimei he will not put him to death. But make a note of Shimei. David will remember what Shammai did to him for the rest of his life. The next person David runs into on the way back to Jerusalem is Mephibosheth. Now, apparently Ziba is still hanging around. Remember that on the flight out, David gave Ziba all of Mephibosheth's inheritance when Ziba told him Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem in rebellion against David. David says to Mephibosheth, Why didn't you go with me when I fled Jerusalem? And Mephibosheth tells David that Ziba went off and left him. And Mephibosheth, being lame, had no way to join David. So now who is David going to believe, Ziba or Mephibosheth? Remember, he's already given Ziba everything that used to belong to Mephibosheth. So now David says, you know what, whatever. The two of you just split it all in half. The next person David encounters is Barzillai, who had brought him provisions and support. David invites Barzillai to return to Jerusalem and live at the court, but Barzillai declines. 
He's 80 years old and he'd rather die at home. So he sends one of his, his household with David instead. Since these incidents seemed to exactly reflect how things happened on the flight from his Jerusalem, I went back to see if this was a chiasm. And there is a chiasm, but there's also a parallel construct, sort of a shadow of the original story of the flight. Let's take a look at it. Here's the basic outline of the chiasm. It's a little oversimplified just for the sake of time. But this is the, the story of the time from the time Absalom is in exile in Geshur up until the time Absalom is killed. First, David longs for Absalom in Geshur. Then Joab allies himself with Absalom and rebukes David for not letting Absalom come into his court. When Israel rebels and chooses Absalom, David flees. David positions the priests as his allies in Jerusalem and prays that Ahithophel's counsel will be thwarted, and he sends Hushai to help make that happen. Then, on the way out of Jerusalem, he's met by Ziva with a wild story about Mephibosheth's rebellion, and Shammai pelts him with stones and curses. This turns out to be the center of the chiasm. Now look what happens as we come out of the center. Look at the reflections. Hushai does thwart Ahithophel's counsel, and the priests send word to David. Then David flees to Mahanaim. That matches him fleeing from Jerusalem. Then we have a shifting of alliances again. Absalom allies himself with Amasa, not his friend Joab. And that mirrors Joab Absal allying himself with Absalom earlier, which was definitely not in David's best interests. And finally, we come full circle with David mourning over Absalom. Pretty wild, huh? But all this was on the way out of Jerusalem, the entire chiasm. So how does the journey back to Jerusalem fit in? Well, it turns out that it runs parallel to the first half of the chiasm, but everything is intensified. Let's follow the journey. The chapter starts with a repetition that Joab becomes aware the king is mourning over Absalom. This mourning over his death compares to David simply longing for Absalom earlier. Joab rebukes David for this. This time, Joab does it directly, whereas in the earlier part of the story, Joab did it obliquely by sending the wise woman to do it for him. Absalom is dead. But still, Israel is undecided as to whether to reinstate David as king. Notice how this part of the story is narrowing in only on certain aspects of the earlier part of the story. There's nothing here about David fleeing. The emphasis is on Israel's choosing. Or in this case, they aren't even able to do that. They're like stuck, unable to even make a choice. Once again, David positions the priests as his allies. This time, they're not hidden allies, but are out in the open, bringing direct messages to the elders of Judah. And we end with David meeting Shammai and Ziba, and then Mephibosheth actually shows up in person, where in the earlier part of the story, he was only talked about. So we've got the same three characters, but this time, all three, Mephibosheth isn't just mentioned, he's actually physically there. 
So this looks like a double emphasis on the center of the chiasm, right? It's like he does the chiasm and then he like repeats it, but intensifies it and stops at that chi- at the end of that chiasm. I mean, at the center, and it is such a weird center. Like why in the world are Zeba and Mephibosheth and Shabai so important? They seem like bit players when you read the story casually. But the author has gone to a lot of trouble to highlight them in the structure of the story. What is their significance? What are they symbols of? I have to admit, it took me a while to figure it out. I finally realized that Ziva and Mephibosheth both accused each other of treachery and of not following David. And that made the pieces fall into place. I suddenly realized that the author intends them as a metaphor for Israel and Judah and how they are about to be at each other's throats. But even deeper, I think the author also intends them as a metaphor of how Israel and Judah do not follow God. They chose Absalom, who represents the idols they worshiped, instead of David, who is the king God chose. So if Ziba and Mephibosheth represent Israel and Judah, then what does Shammai represent? Shammai said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed and has handed the kingdom over to Absalom. Remember, he represents the idols in this metaphor. You can come to, you have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. So the Lord actually is about to eject Israel from the promised land because they've worshipped idols. Shammai stands, I think, as a representative of the prophets the Lord will send. He shows the heart of the Lord towards the people. And that finally explained that really weird part. Remember where David wouldn't let his guard kill Shammai, even while Shammai is pelting him with stones and dirt and curses? I mean, who ever heard of a king allowing such a thing? But David said, he may be cursing me because the Lord told him to. Who am I to question the Lord? Let him curse me. Maybe the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. You see, David recognizes that Shammai may indeed be a prophet. That all happened on the journey out of Jerusalem. But on the journey back to Jerusalem, Shammai comes to David and asks for forgiveness. This again seems to me to be a reflection of what will happen when Israel and Judah repent. God will have mercy on them. So this is complicated, but our backpack tools have stood us in good stead. They've helped us see the author's underlying message, even though it wasn't at all obvious at first glance. The author is arranging and massaging the story to get an important message across to the people he's writing to. When they read this story, they're a nation destroyed and in exile. They need to own their culpability, but they also need to understand God will not let them suffer forever. So realizing that there's this underlying kind of artificial crafted structure underneath the story, we know now not to get hung up on the details or the chronology. Now we know to focus on the message 
which is that God will give us over to our idols if we insist on having them as our gods, but that if we will repent and turn back to him, he will have mercy on us and take us back. Now let's see what happens in the rest of the story. David and his household cross back over the Jordan to meet the men of Judah at Gilgal. At this point, they run into a big contingent of men from Israel, the 10 tribes in the north, who get really ticked off that David crossed back over as king with only the tribe of Judah present. A big shouting match breaks out and the men of Judah say, he's our kin, we have every right to escort him over as our king. We haven't taken anything from you. And the men of Israel say, we are 10 tribes to your one. We have 10 times as much claim on him as you do. We were the ones who said to bring him back in the first place. Why did you do it without us? Things get more and more heated until finally a worthless man named Sheba from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, sounds a ram's horn and shouts, we have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man for himself, O Israel. And all of the men of Israel turn from David and start following Shabbat instead. It's a sign of David's physical and political weakness that he is silent throughout all of this. He has become nothing much more than a figurehead, buffeted about by the political forces swirling around him. But this story also highlights the tensions between Israel and Judah. Fractures in the nation are already showing. This is the metaphor of Ziva and Mephibosheth working itself out in real life. And so David finally arrives back in Jerusalem to reestablish his reign. He sequesters the 10 concubines Absalom defiled, and they live as widows until the day they die. David's got to do something about the rebel Shabbat, so he calls his new commander Amasa to him and orders him to muster the men of Judah here at the capital in three days. Amasa leaves to go gather the men, but three days come and go, and Amasa does not return. David suspects he's been double-crossed yet again. He calls his old friend Abishai to him and tells him to go after Sheba. Now remember, Abishai is Joab's brother. Joab and Abishai are a package deal. And Joab's been kind of scarce lately. But Abishai has stuck to David's side throughout. So Abishai goes to get Joab and they gather their men and strike out after Sheba to put down the rebellion. Just as they reach Gibeon, Amasa shows up. Joab goes up to him and greets him with a kiss and says, is it well with you, my brother? And stabs Amasa in the belly and leaves him in the road to die. That Joab is a piece of work, isn't he? Now Amasa's men and Joab's men must make a choice. Will they fight or will they join together? One of Joab's men steps across Amasa's body and says, whoever is for Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. And the men begin to file past and follow Joab. But every time a soldier would get to where Amasa is lying in the road, he stops to stare. So finally, the man drags Amasa's body to a nearby field and throws a cloak over him so the soldiers will stop rubbernecking. 
Joab and his army finally catch up with Sheba at a town named Abel Beth Ma'akah. It's a walled city in the far northern regions of Israel. They prepare siege ramps and begin attacking the city walls. Just then, a wise woman calls down from the ramparts, Bring me Joab so I may speak with him. When Joab is brought to her, she says, Listen to me. What have you against this ancient and peaceful city of Israel, a mother in Israel's heritage? And Joab says, I have nothing against this city, but you are harboring Sheba, who has rebelled against King David. Give him over to me. And the woman goes to the people of the town, and they cut off Sheba's head and throw it over the wall to Joab. And so they save their city from destruction. And thus it is that Joab comes once again to be David's commander-in-chief. But David remembers Joab's treachery, adding the murder of Amasa to the list of Abner and Absalom. David will not forget. Chapter 21 of 2 Samuel is a standalone story. The people of Israel experience a famine that lasts for three years. They're convinced that it's because there is sin in the land that has not been atoned for. Now remember, this is how people in this culture view the gods, any god. When things go right, they think the gods are pleased with them. When things go wrong, they think the gods are angry with them. And they transfer this cultural understanding to Yahweh. And God meets them where they are. If this is the only way they can understand God, then God will speak to them within this context. So don't try to build a theology out of this. This is some serious cultural wrapping paper. I hope that you've seen enough by now to understand that God is trying to teach the people to be faithful to him and to follow his commands. God just wants the people to draw near. Everything God does has this in view. So when the people believe this famine is because they've done something to displease God, David goes to God to find out where they've gone wrong. And God gives David a reason and a way to make atonement. It's a way for God to enter in and fix the famine in such a way that the people will know that God accepts them and is pleased with them. He tells David the famine is because Saul incurred blood guilt during his reign. Saul, you see, did not deal honorably with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people who lived among them. Saul sought to kill them even after he promised not to. So think about this. God made it clear through the Mosaic law that the Israelites must treat any immigrants or foreigners among them justly, applying the law impartially, just as if they were Israelites. And Saul had violated this. What would this say to the foreigners about the trustworthiness of God? This is what just slays me about what do the actions of Christians today communicate to the immigrants about who God is? The whole point of their even being a chosen people is for them to show the world what a wonderful God Yahweh is. God cares about the world. God cares about the foreigners, and he cares how the Israelites represent him. 
Saul had soiled God's name in the eyes of the foreigners, and God wants David to make this right. Now, whether or not God sent the famine to force this issue, we can't really know. Perhaps he did, or perhaps God is just using the situation to right an old wrong. In any case, David calls the Gibeonites to him and asks what it would take to make the situation right. And they say, give us seven descendants of the man who massacred us. Give us seven of Saul's descendants so we may put them to death. David spares Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, but gives them two of Saul's sons and five of his grandsons. The two sons were never named in Saul's genealogy, so the details of this story are a little suspect. But the point is that David grants the request of the Gibeonites and they kill the seven men. Afterwards, Rizpah, the mother of the two sons, sits outside to protect their bodies until David collects them. And David brings their bones and the bones of Saul and of Jonathan and buries them in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. And after that, the famine eases. We've now come to the very end of David's life. We've finished the books of Samuel. First Samuel told the story of Samuel's life, including the entire reign of Saul, ending with Saul's death. Second Samuel covered all of David's reign and was paralleled by First Chronicles. If you're a sports fan, you can think of the chronicler as the play-by-play announcer and the other books as the color commentator. We've now come to the Book of Kings. It's paralleled by Second Chronicles. These books will take us all the way through to the end of the nation. As we go, we'll be pulling in the various books of the prophets as they occur in the storyline. We'll handle those just like we've done the Psalms. I'll tell you the main messages of the prophets and how they fit into the story, and I'll give you some of the important passages, but we won't cover each prophet's book in detail. This class is about the story. I want you to get a feel for the story of God and his people. I want you to understand how the books fit into the story. This will take us almost to the very end of the Hebrew Bible. Only a few books happen after the nation falls. As King David grows old, he can't stay warm, so they bring him a beautiful young concubine to wait on him and snuggle with him to keep him warm. Her name is Abishag, and she takes tender care of the aged king, and he never has sexual relations with her. Well, we've been through David's first three sons, Amnon, Kiliab, whom we assume died young, and Absalom. The next one in line for the throne is Adonijah. And he starts doing exactly what he saw Absalom do. He hires himself a chariot and 50 men to run in front of it, proclaiming his greatness. He's handsome, like Absalom had been, and both Joab and the priest Abiathar lend their support to him. But Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, who is one of David's generals, as well as a few of the other prominent warriors, are alarmed. Now, David had promised Bathsheba long ago that he would make her son Solomon king, not one of the older sons. So the prophet Nathan goes to Bathsheba and tells her what Adonijah is up to. He urges her to go to David right away to ask him um, why Adonijah is king. Bathsheba goes immediately to David's room where Abishag is 
caring for him. She tells him that Adonijah has made himself king and tells him that Joab and Abiathar have joined him. If David intends to make Solomon king, he better do something fast. Adonijah is having his coronation feast right this minute. As soon as she believes David's room, Nathan comes in and gives David the same message. Then they wait. David calls for Bathsheba, and he swears to her once again that Solomon will be king. Then he calls in Nathan and Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the general, and tells them to mount Solomon on the king's own mule and process with him to the Gihon Brook just outside the city walls. There, Zadok and Nathan are to anoint Solomon king and sound the ram's horn, saying, Long live King Solomon! Then Solomon is to come and sit on David's throne. Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah all rush out to do as King David commanded. They gather up the people until there is a great crowd, and they all process down to the Gihon, where Solomon is anointed king. And then, with great shouting and proclamation and loud horns, the people cry, Long live King Solomon! And Solomon ascends and sits on the throne of his father David. The noise is so great that it reaches Adonijah and his guests at his great feast. At that moment, Abiathar's son runs in with the news, and all the guests at Adonijah's feast scatter like so many roaches. Adonijah himself realizes he's been proclaimed a traitor by his father and his life is forfeit. He runs to the great altar of sacrifice and grabs the horn of the altar and says he will not let go until his brother, King Solomon, promises to spare his life. When Solomon receives word, he says, if he proves trustworthy, he will live. But if he proves treacherous, he will die. And so Adonijah is brought before Solomon. He bows and Solomon says, you may go to your home. As David lies on his deathbed, he calls Solomon to him and says, I am about to die. You must be strong, be a man, even though you are still very young. Solomon's probably no more than 20 at this point. Keep the Lord's commands and walk in his ways. The Lord will then fulfill his promise that there will always be a man of our family on the throne of Israel. And now, son, there are some things I could not do that you must complete. Remember the treachery of Joab, how he murdered Absalom and Abner and Amasah. Do not let him die in peace. Remember to reward the family of Barzillai, who was faithful to me when I was in trouble. And remember Shammai, who cursed me and flung stones and dirt on me. I swore to him I would not put him to death. But you have made no such promise. Deal with him as he deserves. And on his deathbed, David, the son of Jesse, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs, gives praise to God, saying, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. When one rules over men in righteousness and in the fear of God, he is like the light of dawn, like the brightness after the rain that brings grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? 
Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant? Will he not grant me my every desire? Evil men will be cast aside, untouchable, and burned up where they lie. And with these words, David dies. In all, David reigned over God's people for 40 years. And so we come to our breakout sessions. The breakout session um, today, the questions uh, seem very personal. They have to do with how we handle it when our families break, when we are betrayed by those we love, when we face death. Um, we, we are going to enter into that, but you only need to enter into it as far as is safe for you. Be aware of where you are right now. And so don't feel like you need to share specifics. Don't feel like you need to address a trauma that is too tender to be addressed. What we are really trying to get at is how we face these things and where God is in them. So feel free not to give a specific example, but simply to say, when, when I face trauma, this is what I, I do. Or, and, and so the whole idea is to gain strength and sustenance and ideas and support from each other's lived experiences. And here we go. I will see you in 15 minutes. I, I was just saying that your know, Pastor Gail had highlighted that God's trying to teach people to draw near and be faithful to his commands. And just in terms of, you know, trauma and working through things and specifically, mm -hmm. um, you know, in those challenging moments, uh, it's easy for me to turn to others and specifically for us, you know, family has always been that place we turn to. And so it's been a, a a beautiful but challenging shift to shift back towards turning towards God, you know, and really yeah. drawing near towards God and drawing near towards others that can continue to draw us near towards, you know, near God in the midst of, mm -hmm. you know, the journey of wanting to really love well and, um, you know, again, bear good fruit. So mm -hmm. that's a good point. It, it's really, really hard to, have family members who are stuck somewhere and aren't moving towards God. They're just stuck somewhere and, and having to let go and, and go on and, and move towards God and begin to look around for the other people who are on that journey with you. Mm -hmm. It tears your heart out, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And I really let go of the need to, um, you know, to show them or to teach them, you know, to just really allow God to be at work in their lives, um, you know, and also, you know, with the hopes that that can be reciprocated, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you from the point of this 61-year-old person <laughs> who's been going through this for a long time, um, I have just finally gotten to, and we were talking about this when we were going down that chart, I have just finally gotten to the point where my Part three of that is letting go, mm. is, is resigning myself to the fact that there will be no re reconciliation. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. 
That's right. Because years and years of trauma that was brought into my life would have been avoided if those boundaries had been up a long time ago. <laughs> and I am the one who would break down the walls and let people back into my life over and over and over again, only to get hurt over and over and over. And Julie was, we were talking about the same thing. Um, to get hurt over and over and over again. Yeah, that's the way I was too. And uh, finally I was like, okay. And now I was telling them, my brother texted me the other day and said he was going to be in Texas. We wanted to know if we wanted a visit. And I'm like, well, where are you? And he said, Waco. They're going, they're in Waco. And I'm like, well, that's about four hours away. I'm not, sorry. <laughs> but, so he said, well, maybe when we come back from where we're going, because they're, they were tired and they're traveling. He said, maybe we'll come down to San Antonio and see you guys. And I'm like, okay. So I don't know if he will. I don't know what he wants. I'm a little, you know, because I'm like, I've let him in, I've let him in, I've let him in. But now he reached out to me, and this is the first time ever that he reached out to me. Boy, so I'm like, legs went up, didn't they? Oh, yeah. It's like, hmm. <laughs> so we shall see what happens when they come back. You know, and it, sometimes I think that it's, it, um, in, a, in some ways, makes it um, easier. Uh, when you've when you set a healthy boundary and stick to it, somehow that shifts the relationship uh, in such a way that the other person begins to respond to you differently. And um, I'm still and, waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes they don't, but um, and it's important to keep the boundary no matter what. But sometimes it it the boundary helps you. It's not just keeping them in. It's helping you begin to see the relationship in a different way. It's like all of a sudden that, that relationship may have been covering all these particular parts of yourself and of your heart. And now maybe it's just this part. And within this framework, you're able to find a, a healthier way to interact with that person that you're not getting hurt and you're not hurting them. Um, and, and those boundaries, like I tell people all the time, they're like orange highway cones, move them when you need to, they can move in, yeah. move out, <laughs> you know, they don't have to be permanent. So I'll, I'll share very quickly based on what you just talked about, not what we discussed in our group, but um, I tend to be a fixer and mm-hmm. I also tend to self-reflect and figure out what I could have done differently in every six, in such um, situation. Um which was great as a teacher, but not so great with your family, right? Because you constantly bear the burden. And um, I recently kind of put up some pretty strict boundaries with my brother. And uh, I, you know, I was the oldest and the guilt was laid on to me. Oh, you guys are fighting. Well, what happens if there's an accident and somebody dies? And, you oh, know, so I've always been the let it back in, take, take the abuse, let it back in. And I finally kind of broke one day and said, I'm done with this. You've treated me like crap for 50 years. I'm not doing this anymore. And um, I got a stunned reaction in the beginning. And then when I had to assert it again, 
Um, he, the hackles rose a little bit and now he's kind of, you know, not sure, I think where he is with me. And at first it kind of hurt me, but it reminds me of what I'm now saying to my children over again. We teach people how to treat us. And Julie or Gail, when you just said the thing about, you know, that it, they often respond to our boundaries, it's because maybe we're teaching them a new way in which we expect to be treated. And yeah. um, so, you know, you just have to be careful with a healthy boundary versus angry boundaries. But, but yeah, I found it to be very helpful with that. The problem that I have in the trust issues with all this stuff is um, I am pretty good extending grace to everybody but myself. Mm. I'm pretty hard on what could I have done differently? Um, what did I do? you know, how did I do with these things? And so that's where I end up even now in the trust issue. Um, even though I know that it isn't the people that can be trusted, I also don't trust myself because I was like, where was my judgment of people that I missed this? <laughs> you know, so. We learn though. And I, I you know, we we don't we're not born with this wisdom and this knowledge right Agreed. and Agreed. people don't teach us this stuff um i i uh and that's partly uh why i i laid the chart out like i did over time it's like how did this feel at first how did it change if you've set boundaries if, if with a family member because there has to be boundaries with that family member do you feel differently now looking back on it or in the place you are in the relationship than you did when it was fresh i remember uh past i think it was my pastoral care professor one of them in uh, seminary no it was my own therapist there you go. It was my own therapist who told me, he, she said, Gail, when you set a boundary with someone who is being abusive, they will throw an absolute hissy fit tantrum. Stick to your boundary. Just be factual. This is the boundary. No emotion. Just this is the boundary. <laughs> Let that sit. She said, the next time that you end up having to remind them of the boundary, they will throw a fit, but it won't be as bad as the first one. She said, let it sit, be firm. Don't be emotional. Don't get hooked in. Don't explain your boundary. Just this is the boundary. That's where my big problem comes in, explaining. I want to don't explain. explain the boundary. It is the boundary. And the third time, she said, they'll come back three times to you. Third time, there will be a reaction. It will be somewhat smaller. And after that, when you set the boundary, they generally will no longer react. She said, this is not, of course, universal, but she says a lot of times, this is yeah. how it works. I've, re I've, re I've um, experienced the opposite. He didn't have much of a... At first, it was a stun and an apology, and now he's become more angry, um, and it makes me sad. Um, the one thing I do know is that 
it makes me sad because it's my brother and the only sibling I have. Um, and what was that book we all read in poli sci in college about the woman whose brother dies and it's all about family relationships and how, you know, a sibling is a gift you can never replace. What's the name of that? It's a Greek. Anyway, um, so I guess that's been in my head. And it makes me sad because this isn't the relationship I want with my brother. I want a close relationship. And we were there when I was taking care of my mom. But I also realized that we were close because I put up with too much stuff. Yeah. And if this boundary means that he's moving away because he doesn't want any part of my boundary. I mean, it makes me sad, but it is what it is. I'm not going to give it up. We each get to move in the direction that we want. Yes. He yes. can move away and you can move away. You know, it's so important to realize that you are on your path. It took me more than 50 years, I'm afraid, to realize that in as a wife, I had a right to my life. Mm. Me no, figuring no. that out nearly destroyed our marriage. But it was a boundary that had to be laid down. And we survived. Our mm. marriage survived. We survived. We are thriving. And I am so much healthier and so much happier than, than I was before I realized I'd been fed a lie all my life. Hmm. You know, Gail, when you were talking about the three times you come back on the boundaries, mm -hmm. it made me realize I have a past of dysfunctional okay. relationships, probably like everybody else, but they're pretty extreme. First in my my family of origin, my first marriage, and my second marriage. By the time I married my husband, who's amazing, I had not learned how to fight or argue. And I had seen all this other dysfunctional behavior. So I was pretty horrendous toward my husband. And he wouldn't fight with me. He'd just walk off. He would go for a walk. And I thought, you coward. What are you doing? Why can't you talk to me? And I would become enraged that he would leave and walk off. And then he would do it every time. And then finally one day he says, I'm not going to engage. This is not acceptable. And we don't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, but I can't, I would say it was a lot more than three times that it happened. <laughs> And I would get madder and madder and madder that he was not going to stand there and argue with me, you know, but now, you know, I just pick my fights with him and there's really nothing to fight about. You know, there's things I want to make an opinion about. And sometimes I just let him talk and we'll see what happens. You know, it's and you know, better. I think you bring up a really good point, which is, we are not taught how to fight well. No, it not. is natural that we, <laughs> any two people living together are, are going to irritate each other, you know? And it is also natural that you marry young and you don't know each other well. You aren't even formed. How could you know each other well? Each person hasn't even become who they're going to be yet, you know? And, um, and as you 
form as a soul, you can grow apart or you can go grow together. You can change who, what you think. Um, and, and it's important to reflect on the relationships in your life and think about how the two of you have been trained to fight. Mm. How, what patterns have you fallen into? And do you need to reach out and be educated on how to fight in a healthy way? Yes, we spent four and a half years in therapy for that. <laughs> Makes a big and difference. It is. It is. Now, well, I will say we have not mastered the, the art of the subtle um, social, social cues, like time to change the subject or anything. My husband and I cannot get that down. He does not pick up on my nudging or trying to change the subject. He'll go right back to the old subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we've been married since 98, <laughs> and we're still working on that. So let me ask you all a question. Given that we all share this kind of trauma in one relationship or more in our lives and over the course of our lives, where is God in this for you? Is God in this for you? Something that I realized kind of been dealing with betrayal and drama and all of that things that we've talked about, you know, initially it's you, you, you're so quick to feel that pain and it's so personal and it's devastating to the point where it's like physically, like you physically feel it, whether it's nauseous or your stomach gets upset, it's mentally exhausted. There's some effects of some depression or anxiety that gets triggered. And then I think what, obviously through time, through support, through this Bible study, through, you know, just having people recognize or teach you that they're, that everybody is kind of in their own stages of grief. Mm -hmm. I think for me has helped me recognize that then I'm able to kind of separate and not make it as personal attack and, and, and just kind of we're all in this unique journey, feeling it at different stages. Some may be in anger, some may be in denial, some may be, you know, just in, in different um, stages of that. But then that's where I think I have been able to re really experience that. What you said earlier, Pastor Gail, is that God is pursuing all of us in the midst of it. So it, it's so difficult because initially it's personal. You can't even think. And then you're you go through this moment of, okay, we're all in this different journey of stages of grief. And then I can kind of rest in, I don't know how and why. And sometimes I'm frustrated with it, but God is pursuing me and loves me as much as he's pursuing those people and, th and my family members and those friends. And, and as much like it, it, it's bizarre to get to that point. And I think only time, and I think definitely having support to remind you that time setting boundaries understanding all of this will help you recognize that god is in it in all of it um and he loves them as much as he loves you and 
I think it was uh, Renee that said, and he'll bless them as much as he'll bless you and he'll pursue them he as bless. much as he pers pursues you. So it, it's, it's just this weird journey to glad accept. It was me. Oh, I'm glad I, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's complex, but yet freeing to get to that point where you realize, I don't know how he does it, but he right. loves me and loves them. As much as I want God to not really love them, he does. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that smiting when you need it? Yes. <laughs> but, but it also, it helps to, it does help to know that you are not the savior. Mm. Oh my gosh, mm. yes. <laughs> I know when I've gone through some traumas, I can really sense the Holy Spirit with me, just helping me to get through it, keeping my head above water, helping me to get some clarity. And then as I shared with our group, the biggest part of my trauma was my reconciliation. And it wasn't for the person who I reconciled with, it was for me. And the other thing is where God is in all this is he gave me a gift that I used early on, which is compartmentalization. And it serves me well in my job now. You know, I'm able to compartmentalize a lot of things. And so that helps me. Um, he, he's led me to some great therapists and I see them weekly and they help me. I have a great friend support group. You know, he's brought people into my life that have enriched my life. And so one of the things I started therapy with was I don't have memories. And as we delve into those memories, we figured out why I don't have those memories. I don't need those memories. And so I just, I just move forwards. I love, you know, genealogy and the history and everything, but those details of my past, yeah, they're not so important. No. You know? That's really powerful. It is so powerful to name the, the things that you need to let go of. It is powerful to name as sin what somebody else did to you and confess it on their behalf, you know, if you do have those memories and then burn them, write them on a piece of paper and burn them, you know, just let them turn to ash and blow away. Um, no carbon copies. No carbon copies and do it as often as you need to, to let it go. These, the reason we as humans have ritual is the same reason that God gave the Israelites, those ancient peoples, all those sacrifices that they could do in all these different ways. We need object lessons. <laughs> we need to embody the letting go of our guilt and our shame and our anger and our hurt. That's what all that sacrificial system was about. Gail, if I can say for memories. Um, I have been blessed slash cursed with a really good memory 
<laughs> there are things I remember that I really wish I could repress that I, you know, I wish I didn't remember. Um, and because I remember certain things that have happened throughout my life and other people who were involved in them don't remember it or don't remember it the same way or, you know, it's led to problems. And I think sometimes having those repressed memories is a blessing and they're repressed for a reason because your mind is protecting you. I want to say God is protecting you. You know, there's another, there's another part to this. And that is these things that happen to us are so deep and so important and so life-changing that often we cannot let them go because we should not let them go. That even though they hurt us, we need to honor them as part of us. And so sometimes, depending on what it is, it's not as helpful to write it and burn it and release it as it is to place it in safekeeping. And many of the ways that we do this is to place it in safekeeping in the hands of a friend or trusted one that we can tell, who can mirror back to us how important that is and that was, but can hold it for us. And in your case, Shirley, if I was going to offer this as an option to you, I would say to you, take this memory that needs to be held and honored and place it inside a song. Find the song for that memory and place it there and let it go. And when you hear that song, remember it. Remember and honor what happened. But find symbolic ways, physical, meaningful ways to place these important events and wounds into. As Christians, collectively, that is the cross. We don't dwell in the cross. The cross is not our future. The cross is not our heritage. The cross is not our hope. And the cross is not our um, inheritance. But the cross is where all our wounds reside and are honored and are held safe. Wow. One of the things that I learned through my 15 years of what's on this chart um, (laughs) is, um, and I think Ellen said something about, um, and maybe it might have been Joe too, I don't know, said something about having grace with ourselves. And and, um, one of the things that absolutely is, 
one of my pet peeves is when somebody assumes my motivation <laughs> because I know what my motivation is. And you telling me my motivation is not, no, you don't know. You don't know my motivation. And I try to, everything I do is motivated by love. It doesn't always look that way. <laughs> and I, you know, have had traumatic things that have happened where people have said that my motivation was, you know, to cause trouble or to stir things up or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, no, I was trying to be helpful. And, you know, I'm a fixer. And sometimes I need to learn to let go and not try to fix it. And so what I have learned through that is to not assume another person's motivations. And that really only happened within the past year. That's powerful, Shirley, and that's important. It's part of what it means when we say we need to live in the now. Um, uh, it's, it's part of being in the moment and of being who we are and letting that person be who they are in the moment. Uh, one of the things that my kids tell me that my father um, taught them that was really, really meaningful to them uh, growing up is that our disappointments, our wounds, our strife, our anger are very often embedded in our expectations of that relationship. Mm -hmm. And that if we can identify our expectations and lay them down, We, our expectations are what we are directional. You see what I'm saying? That they're where the relationship, we expect that relationship to go, how we expect that relationship to be, how we expect that person to be, who we expect them to be in, in their life. And none of that is in the reality of now. When you say lay it down, you mean leave it alone, let it go. Let it go. Like, Don't make it be their like reality. That. It's a it is an idol to use Bible language. <clears throat> I, I think I I really resonate with that. That that you know my, my heart is resonating with that. That is something that I desire to do. And I know I've spoken with Pastor Gail about this before. Back to an idol, I think for me it's not only expectation, but it's also you know, out of my wounds comes a deep-seated need that I, I'm recognizing right now today in kind of my current challenge that I have sought um, safety, for example, from my family versus safety from the Lord. And, oh, you know, and so wow. I think, you know, for me, it's a, it is a deep piece that is, makes me tearful just to think mm -hmm. about it. But I, I, I know that that is a piece of, you know, I want them to repent. I don't want to be the one to repent. And so I think that, you know, back to bringing it to David, right. Versus Saul, you know, David's willing to, willingness to humble himself. And um, I think made the outcome, you know, his beginning middle and end of his story. So very different than Saul. And so um, I definitely am feeling called by God with the, not only um, releasing expectation, but releasing expectation. I think back to him, um, and then also having that moment of, you know, being at the foot of the cross and um, in humility and really asking the Lord, you know, to be my safe place, which historically 
he's been my backup plan. And, mm. you know, and I, I'm, I'm wondering if he's not, I'm wondering, he clearly is, I think, asking me to um, release plan A and, and allow him to retake that, that mm. plan A spot, which, you know, I, I've just seen the theme of that over the weeks of spending time with you guys. It, it does seem that that's his consistent call to us, but I've been balking at it. You know, like just waiting for them to fix it so then they can get back into the plan A spot. So versus releasing that expectation and allowing him, who is the only one who can fulfill that expectation, to take that spot. I could mirror exactly what you're just saying. Thank you. Although I like to fool myself and think that I've placed God first. Yeah. No, I mean, just even the expectation, the yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I I wanted to share too that even in our group, that's one thing I find that being brave and being vulnerable to share these hurts. And, you know, Gail, you, you set the, the, the groundwork for us. Where are we? Where is God in this? I think that, you know, every time people share things that others realize that they're not alone anymore, it also allows us to continue to look at everybody and go, you know, when we talk about assumptions, I don't know where they are in their path. I don't know what struggles and hurts they're wearing. So it's not for me to judge. It's, you know, and I mean, I don't mean to make it so basic and simple, but, but, it is. but it's what I told my husband years ago when we encounter somebody who's homeless. It's not ours to judge why, what, whatever. The only choice we have is do we give or not? And I think it's the same in every interaction that we come across. When we encounter, we encounter people, we don't know where they are in their journey. And it's not ours to assume the intention. It's not ours to do any of those things. It's, you know, are we in a place to give or not? That's, that's all there is. Because God I, has the right. I just want to say that I feel the spirit moving among us today. And the fact that we are perceiving a simple message that has universal application in every single facet of our lives means we have drawn near to the heart of God. This is why we do studies like this. This is why we gather together as Christians. It's not about what day of the week we do it on. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about having a sermon or singing a particular song or doing a particular ritual. We gather together so we can hear each other's witness and be bonded together and be encouraged. And so I just want to honor the vulnerability today. I want to honor your struggles and your wounds. And I want to tell you that each of you is shining like a bright light. And I want to leave you all with a prayer that this week, in particular, you feel God walking beside you through the hard spots. And I ask that you remember those who are not with us today who are, are walking through hard spots. And I love you. And I'll see you next week.